The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndica Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to pick up our conversation on China's overseas development financing. Now, this has been a hot topic of discussion over the past few months, ever since the research team at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center unveiled the findings from their new interactive loan database that tracks lending patterns of China's two largest policy banks. Now, that's the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank. Now, what they found, as many regular listeners will be aware, is that loans from these two banks plunged from $75 billion in 2016 to just $4 billion in 2019. And that got a lot of people thinking that this might show, maybe, that Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative could be flaming out. Uh, but for China's critics, and there are many, as you know, uh, that may too also be wishful thinking. Because what we're seeing, though, is a quite a bit of vitality in other aspects of the Belt and Road, beyond just what the policy banks are doing. Now, earlier this week, for our daily newsletter subscribers, I showcased this essay written by Moritz Rudolph, who's an Asia associate at the German Institute for International Security Affairs. And he was writing about China's health diplomacy during COVID-19 and how the Belt and Road Initiative is faring. And let me read you a quote from that. Now, again, this is about health and so it doesn't have much to do with necessarily overseas loans and financing, but it is interesting nonetheless. The BRI has not floundered on COVID-19, as some observers had predicted in the early days of the pandemic. On the contrary, he writes, Beijing has increasingly been linking its contribution to combating the pandemic with the BRI narrative. With its high degree of flexibility, strong political will, and logistically advantageous starting position, the BRI has so far been able to weather the test of this crisis. So, Kobus, that's in the health sector, but let's take a look now at what's going on in the energy sector, and this is arguably one of the most important parts of the BRI. Energy makes up probably the largest part of the Chinese international loan portfolio uh, since 2000, and these are stats from Boston University again, the same Global Development Policy Center. The Chinese have extended financing for 272 different energy projects worth about $241 billion. Now those are on coal, oil, hydropower, and gas power projects. But the fall in energy financing tracked very closely to the plunge in lending from those two policy banks. So consider this. Back in 2016, the Chinese lent around $35 billion for energy projects all around the world. By 2019, that number was just $5 billion. So that is a stunning drop. But the news is not all bad, though. As we know, China is, in fact, putting away the big checkbook, but not for everything. The folks at the Green Belt and Road Initiative Center in Beijing, they published their annual report a couple of weeks ago that found that for the first time, renewable energy investments in solar, wind, and hydro made up the majority of China's overseas investments in energy. So 
Kobus, the Chinese are definitely spending less on BRI projects, but it's not gone away, and the BRI is still very much a reality. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to see how it's developing. You know, I think the the issue of energy really lies at the heart of the BRI because so so many of of the initial thinking around the BRI also had to do with with ensuring that that China has stable access to sources of electricity um, and other kinds of energy. Um, you know, so 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 many of it, uh, w- you know, was the, of the original thinking. You know, was focusing on on things like pipelines. Um, so the kind of infusion of of you know. Of green, of you know, green, and therefore also easy, more easily um, decentralizable, uh, you know, kind of forms of energy like like solar, like really scrambles the thinking in the BRI in an interesting way, um, and it'll be very interesting to see how how it kind of shifts thinking around the BRI as a whole. Well, let's dive into some of these facts and figures on the green BRI and the state of investment. We've got two of the authors of that report from the Green Belt and Road Initiative Center. Uh, Christoph Nedapil is the founding director of the center and also a senior research fellow at the International Institute of Green Finance at the Central University of Finance and Economics in Beijing. And Meng Di Yue is a researcher at the Green BRI Center and uh, also at the International Institute of Green Finance. Uh, happy Year of the Ox to both of you, and thank you so much for joining us from Beijing. Thank you so much, Kobos and Eric, for having us, and happy year of the Ox to all of you. Thanks for inviting us. Let's get started, and, and just help me clear up something here. Christoph, I want to go to you first. And the reason why I am confused, because we hear all of this exciting headlines about how China is expanding its investments in green, renewable energy, which is great. Everybody loves it. China also announced that by 2060, it's going to be, I think it's going to rid itself of so much of the carbon that it's producing today. But yet, yet, last year, China put 38.4 gigawatts of new coal-fired power capacity into operation. And it is, uh, and the idea that it's going to be carbon neutral in 40 years feels like, you know, who cares? Because right now, they're pushing on so much new carbon into the atmosphere and at the same time, they're investing overseas, but are they just not shifting the carbon burden to BRI countries? Talk to us a little bit about what you found in your report about that contradiction that seems to be out there in terms of what China's doing at home and what it's doing abroad. Thank you. I think that's a, that's a very uh, tough and complex question. So we focus definitely on our research here at the Green BRI Center on China's outward investment. We all also follow, of course, what's going on in China because it informs a lot of the um, policies and policy direction and investments uh, that we are seeing in the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, as you mentioned before, of course, uh, 2020 was a very interesting year for the BRI. Um, a, st- a strong drop of investments, of course, related to COVID. Um, it's actually a, a trend that has been continuing. You mentioned kind of the 2016 data that was, of course, uh, a very strong year for the BRI. And 2020 was um, a much weaker year. Now, what we are seeing is a stronger um, push for renewable investments. And that um, definitely comes from two sides. Um, on the one hand, we have uh, the demand side, where a lot of the BRI countries are understanding that the uh, green technologies, particularly in solar and wind, have dropped in price so drastically that um, it's cheaper to invest uh, in renewable energies. Um, so the levelized cost of energy, that's what we're looking at. Um, 
which means kind of how much do you pay in the end for one kilowatt hour, for example, has dropped so significantly um, that it's worth to invest in renewable energies. And so we're seeing some cancellation of uh, coal-fired power plants and some of which you had featured on your show as well. So we had the Lamu coal-fired power plant. We have uh, one in Egypt. And we also have Pakistan's announcement in December that they don't want to uh, invest in new coal. And we have Bangladesh, Vietnam, who are reevaluating their uh, coal investment pipeline. So on the demand side, we're seeing definitely a shift. And then we're also seeing some form of shift on the supply side, um, where last year, for example, in December, the uh, uh, green development guidance for the BRI, um, which was backed by relevant ministries um, and published by the BRI Green Coalition, um, which is a uh, official uh, official network of uh, relevant institutions in the BRI in, led by China. Um, the green development guidance put, for example, all of the fossil fuel investments into a red category um, due to their uh, environmental impacts. So there is definitely some movement also coming from China uh, to um, understand the uh, environmental risks of fossil fuel investments. Mengdi, can you talk a little bit about the role of, of Chinese state-owned enterprises in all of this? There's, there's a narrative that, that I've seen repeated a lot that, that as China becomes more tough on emissions, the, there's, there's pressure on, on state-owned enterprises to, to, to kind of move their coal capacity to other countries along the BRI. Um, and that narrative has, has shown up a lot in, in Africa. Um, how, how true is that? And, and what are some of the complications that we're not seeing? I have to say that I don't look a lot about SOEs uh, in my research, um, but another focus of our research is uh, the financial institutions, including the insurance that actually provide a guarantee for overseas, um, co such as coal-fired power plants investment, um, is that there uh, is still no strong consensus among Chinese financial institutions to stop uh, financing fossil fuel projects overseas. I think that's also some a factor that is um, kind of a little bit hard uh, for uh, for us to see a real change there. Mengdi, since you focus on the on the financial side of it, I just want to really kind of dive into that very quickly here. It seems to that to us on the outside that the Chinese appear to be agnostic, at least from the banking and the financial and the, the insurance side whether it's a green project or whether it's a carbon-heavy project. Because for them, they're looking at the transaction and they're looking at the deal. And, and then we saw that again in the Lamu coal-fired power plant drama that happened last year, 2019 as well, that ICBC uh, was, was, was underwriting or had planned to underwrite. So is there a certain level of, well, they don't care as long as the deal makes sense, great. There is that can that consensus. Does that exist there that there's some idea to put priority on green, or to them is it just all a transaction? I think it depends on the internal mechanism or like the internal ideas of different financial institutions. Um, but generally, what I understand is that um, financial profits, or the dollar, as you just said, is still the the major factor that is leading such kind of investments. Christoph, like following up on that, um, I've seen, uh, you know, kind of like discussion in um, in advocacy circles, particularly in green advocacy circles, around lobbying a, a company like SinoSure, the big Chinese state um, insurance company that underwrites a lot of these projects, to make them 
um, you know, s stop kind of underwriting coal-fired um, projects. Um, you know, and, and we've seen also last, um, I think last year, the, the the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank tweeted that they're not going to be um, be investing in, in coal-fired um, projects anymore. Um, do you see pressure on a, an institution like Sinusure, for example, to, uh, like changing this kind of calculus? There are many different stakeholders, and Sinoshore, AIB, the financial sector, the SOEs that you mentioned, they all face different pressures. Um, you just mentioned AIB. Um, AIB, in fact, had never uh, invested actually in uh, coal-fired uh, um, technologies before, so it was not such a big shift from their from their current portfolio. But it's nevertheless an important signal um, as a, a multilateral financial institution that is based in Beijing and investing a lot in the countries of the BRI um, to say that coal um, is not uh, part of their future portfolio as well. Now, Sinoshore is an interesting one because Sinoshore, of course, ensures the majority of um, projects uh, that happen in the BRI. And we're seeing a lot of movements in the global um, insurance industry um, to also move out of um, securitizing coal uh, investments, or at least announcing that they, that they uh, would phase, phase it out. We have not seen um, any such announcement from Sinoshore, and Sinoshore um, will, of course, play a major role um, right now to ensure that the coal-fired power plants um, are viable also for the financial sector, because if you don't have an insurance company um, backing um, your investments, ensuring that uh, it's insured against um, various political um, or financial risks, also the SOEs or the financial institutions would not be able um, to actually invest in this coal-fired power plant. So Sinoshore is definitely um, at an extremely important um, crucial point uh, to move the needle. Um, at the same time, we also see, of course, that uh, the, just because in China, uh, the top-down approach is, is so important. So we have policies that influence decision-making for the financial institutions, the SOEs, the Sinoshore, that in the end, it has to come um, from uh, a lot a lot of initiatives have to come from the government and don't necessarily come from the grassroots as we are seeing um, in, in other countries. But Christoph, it's interesting because if, if that's in fact the case then, it really does raise the question as to whether or not this movement towards green is motivated by the right intentions. What is the motivation for the Chinese to promote green uh, financing for energy? Is it because they think there's better opportunities to drive transactions? Is it because they're now a major producer of the technology that goes into green and this is a new market for them? Or is it because they think that this is what developing countries actually need? What's the what's the driving force here? So I think it, it is a mixture of several things, as you, as you said. Um, the first one is, of course, China is a major producer of uh, technologies for renewable energies. Um, so the uh, solar, the wind, um, also the hydropower, if you consider that as a renewable energy, um, there's a question whether it's a green energy in a, in a pure sense. Um, is There's a lot of technological capacity in China that can also be exported. So there's kind of a drive. There's an opportunity. Um, the second aspect um, that we are also focusing on is the financial risks of um, coal assets. Um, there's a huge debate whether um, coal investments, both in um, energy sector, but also in coal mining, are in fact stranded assets because the price of coal-fired energy is 
relatively increasing to the um, decreasing uh, cost of renewable energies. So it does not make sense for investors to invest in an asset that in a couple of years will actually not be returning any profits. Um, so that's what we call stranded assets, because in the end, this asset, like this coal-fired power plant, is not um, generating any revenues. And then you have to shut it down. And what do you do with it then? And so this is a financial risk that is also um, increasingly understood here in China. This will be accelerated as soon as more BRI countries also include a carbon price through a carbon tax or emission trading system. Um, and the third one, of course, is reputation. Um, we see a global movement um, away from uh, investing in coal. The EU just announced um, again that it will not uh, will strengthen efforts to immediately phase out um, uh, overseas coal investments. Um, we're seeing several large investment banks um, to announce that they won't do any more coal. So it is a, definitely a global trend. And with China being a signatory to the Paris Agreement and its goal to become a climate leader and this uh, big announcement by Xi Jinping about the 2060 carbon neutrality goal, it cannot afford to continuously um, invest uh, in coal without losing um, some of its reputation. So it's rather a reputational gain as well, of course, if you invest in, in green. Mengdi, one of one of the, the the possible instruments that that's been raised in in um, the Green BRI Center's publications is the issue of debt for nature swaps. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what those are. Like I think I think a lot of, of listeners, you know, kind of aren't aware that this is something that's, that's actually going on in the in the debt market. So uh, debt for nature swap is just one of the one among the many tools for debt restructuring. Um, we see it as a alternative to some more commonly used um, debt swaps like debt for resources swaps or debt for equity swaps. So in the debt for nature swaps, some some of the debt owned by the debtor countries uh, to the creditor government could be swapped for the commitment of the debtor government to protect the environment or into some conservation projects. And then um, the creditors sell parts of the debt at a discount to a environmental trust funds, or they could just cancel part of the debt directly. And instead, the government, the debtor government makes interest payments at a lower interest, man, uh, interest rate, uh, usually in local currency. Um, in that way, we could source uh, some money uh, for the local conservation projects in debtor countries, and the creditor can get some of its money back instead of um, saying that the debtor country uh, go into default. This sounds like a fantastic idea. It sounds amazing. It solves so many problems at once, but it also sounds like it came out of a think tank and runs into the reality of people at the Exim Bank whose careers are based on getting a return on that investment. And I'm just curious, does this actually exist in reality or is this just an idea, Mengdi? Yeah, this actually existed. Um, it was initiated in 1984 and it was quite active in the 1980s and 1990s uh, when the, like, the status of many developing countries, they're facing um, great debt sustainability issues. We do see like fewer cases entering the 21st century. Do you have any examples of it in the 21st century? Yes, uh, we have this um, case of seashells in 2015-2016, uh, initiated by the Nature Conservancy, TNC. And also in 2009, there is a 
debt swap cases between U.S. and Indonesia. Actually, U.S. has conducted a lot of such debt financial swaps cases um, after 2000 under the TC, TFCE uh, framework. Christoph, the, the U.S. Has a, lo- has a long history in being very flexible with debt repayments, also the fact that they do cancellations. Uh, the Chinese don't have any of that context. They don't cancel debt other than interest-free loans and grants. They've shown to be far more rigid in many ways in terms of, again, forgiving debts. They will reschedule debts, restructure debts, but they don't wipe out debts. What makes you think then that you can take, not you, but the idea or the creators of this kind of debt for nature swaps would be able to be appealing to the Chinese who have really shown no inclination that this is something that they'll do? So debt is, of course, an extremely thorny and sensitive issue, um, I think, in many countries and, of course, also uh, in China. It's, uh, you guys have covered it in, in your podcast and in your newsletter extremely rigorously, and I've been following it uh, with, with delight. Um, so the uh, question whether China and how China deals with its debt is also, of course, an extremely um, sensitive one. As you said, uh, a lot of debt, uh, a lot of interest-free um, debt has been uh, cancelled. Now that is, of course, only a small fraction of the overall um, debt that uh, that China holds or has given to other countries. Um, whether debt for nature swaps will play a role um, is, of course, an open question. It is it is a question though that uh, gains momentum. China is for the first time in the situation. Um, to really have to restructure such a large amount of debt. The COVID crisis has accelerated the debt issue um, in in many of the countries, um, as you have written um, extensively. And the question now is, how do we manage debt sustainably? Um, How do we ensure that we're not um, falling into any Un- unfortunate events where either the uh, the debtor countries are unable to pay back or that we are um, doing debt for resources and debt for equity swaps that might um, also lead to um, and repercussions. And what are our options? So we are really kind of trying to evaluate all different options. The next reason why debt for nature swaps are gaining um, also momentum and are not uh, they are definitely heard here as well in China, is that China's hosting the biodiversity COP in Kunming later this year, if everything goes well. Now, the biodiversity COP is, of course, a large event um, where China wants to show its successes in ecological civilization um, in an international context. And so it is a huge opportunity, of course, also to show some ideas. How do we deal with this global issue, which is not only a China issue, the debt issue, it's a global issue. And how can um, debt also be used um, to build back better, to build back green? Um, And so debt for nature swaps is definitely one of the things um, that uh, can be explored and is also being explored. Which kind of reforms in in within the Chinese system would it take to really scale debt for for nature um, swaps? Do, you know, you in in your writing you you point out that that there's like in in excess of a billion dollars, like you know, kind of between one and two billion dollars roughly in in total have been have been uh, you know has been debt of of debt has been restructured you know in in this way. And in order, you know, I, I recently read um, I think there's a, there's a famous uh, you know kind of estimation um, coming out of ecological circles that 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 some people say that that in order to really combat um, uh, climate change we would have to reforest very large parts of the world like you know kind of like you know a third to to more you know kind of 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 kind of surface area on the earth would have to be forested so in order to scale it um, 
Like, wh which kind of changes would have to come into the Chinese system? As Christoph just mentioned, um, like Chinese policymakers usually prefer a um, top-down approach, um, like building this uh, mechanism first, and then we implement the policy. Uh, so I think, as I also mentioned in the uh, report uh, that we wrote, the debt for nature swaps its implication is I'm sorry its implementation is so uh, complex and requires a lot of efforts. Um, so I think the first thing for Chinese policymakers to uh, consider is um, to establish a specific um, agency that is in charge of the design implement implementation and supervision of such swaps to guarantee that this long-term pipeline of these swaps are successful. And the second one is, um, is to develop kind of a, a framework with some clause, with some policies, uh, laying out the requirements of debt for nature swaps, what kind of debt are eligible for this, and how, um, how, how the creditor government uh, will uh, be part of it and supervise it and make sure it works well. Um, even with this baseline framework, it's also um, time-consuming and needs some more efforts to develop uh, a debt for nature swap agreements based on different the conditions in different um, countries. Um, like, how do we develop a... Uh, that for nature swap agreements that can really support uh, the conservation goals of the debtor country instead of going into the opposite direction. Um, yeah, I think those are the mm, those are the like the some basics for this uh, change to make debt for nature swaps um, possible. And also there are some more details um, such as like, how to attract co-funding. Uh, from private investors and from NGOs and how to work at kind of uh, in the, with the international community um, to boost this um, like the, the, the uh, biodiversity goals, the, the Aichi goals, the SDG goals um, at the global scale. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Witts University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitzChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za. Christoph, let's dive into your report a little bit more from what you guys wrote about last year. And again, going back to this idea of where is the BRI going? And this is the question that a lot of people have because we're getting so many conflicting inputs as to, as to what's happening. Obviously, spending is down. A lot of people have become accustomed over the years, especially in Africa, to massive BRI spending or massive spending from the, the policy banks. That's not going to happen anymore. If, you know, if we were a group of African presidents, prime ministers, key stakeholders, and we were wondering what's happening with the BRI, you sit there in Beijing, you talk to a lot of people who study this, you yourself focus on it. Tell us where you think it's going in 2021 and beyond. The 2021 uh, is off to a, a challenging start for sure. 
Um, I think we, we've seen some important trends and some important issues. Um, the first uh, issue, of course, as we discussed just now, is debt and how do we uh, restructure debt? Because without uh, a debt restructuring, any large infrastructure investment is just extremely difficult. There's just not enough um, money to pay off uh, large infrastructure projects. So th this is this is a key, and uh, this, as long as this is not solved, I think we'll we'll focus more on smaller projects. And some of the smaller projects are actually quite exciting. Um, uh, Kobus mentioned before that the scalability of uh, renewable energies is is an important aspect, and we are also seeing this for the for the year to come. So for a coal-fired power plant, you need a lot of money um, up front, um, and you uh, then commission a 1.2 gigawatt uh, coal-fired power plant. Now, with renewable energies, particularly solar and wind, it's much more scalable. And so we're hoping to see more uh, renewable investments, particularly also um, with the idea to build back green, um, to uh, use some of the technologies that are available. The second aspect that we're seeing um, for 2021 is a focus more on um, Southeast Asia. Now, last year, um, the RCEP uh, treaty was signed, which is the Regional Cooperative Economic Partnership um, between a lot of the uh, ASEAN countries. And we're seeing a shift um, of investments um, in this region um, to strengthen infrastructure investments. We just saw a new um, MOU signed for a feasibility study um, of another railway in Myanmar. Um, we're seeing a lot of movement in Hainan to build this out to be an even more impressive port and really connecting um, the different uh, uh, RCEP members. And so I think uh, last year we already saw a focus um, in 2020, we already saw a stronger focus on um, East Asia um, and West Asia um, compared to the previous years. And this is definitely one of the areas uh, that I also believe that we'll see um, investments in uh, 2021. We are also seeing a decline um, in investments in Latin America. Um, let's see whether this this continues um, over over 2021. Um, there are, of course, some aspects of of investments, um, but in the end, uh, what China is often then more interested is less is 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 trade, um, trade of commodities, um, trade in agricultural products, um, trade in resources, and potentially less investments um, in uh, any. Um, any large infrastructure projects, Christoph. One of the one of the um, contradictions that Eric pointed out at the top of the of the, the episode is that there is, you know, I've seen it characterized as as a response to the the economic crisis of COVID nineteen, but that there, there's been a kind of a, a recommitment to, to investment in coal fired energy in with within China. Do you for, how do you foresee this kind of developing, particularly in the in the larger context of you know kind of of China's energy commitments and also, it's it's worry about coal being a stranded asset. Like you know, kind of like do do, uh, do you foresee some of these projects being dropped in the future? I think that's a kind of looking also at the uh, um, kind of the coal investments over the last year. Uh, the announcement of Xi Jinping to uh, for China to peak before 2030 and uh, to be carbon neutral by 2060 came late last year. So I think a lot of within China, a lot of the uh, um, investments were uh, accelerated in order to get approvals for um, coal-fired power plants. Um, this has been criticized, as you guys might have also heard or even written about, by um, the uh, energy in, by, by the inspection committee of the MEE, where NEA um, really got called out. NEA is uh, the the energy planner um, of China, and I think this is also a trend that we're we're seeing um, in the BRI that there is a 
larger uh, understanding of the need to move away um, from coal to green. Um, the important aspect um, there for a lot of the investors uh, is how good are BRI countries in actually absorbing a lot of the renewable energies? Um, renewable energies um, are by far less stable than if you invest in a coal-fired power plant because wind or solar is just not stable. Now, what we need in order um, to actually have stable energy systems is investments in grids. This is a huge um, topic in all of the uh, countries that are seeing a lot of new energy needs because of the, their economic growth. Now, what that means is who is investing in these grid systems? Who's uh, who's building these? Who's owning these? Um, and this is a often contentious issue because uh, the uh, the grids do are often strategic assets. So who's owning the grid? Who's controlling the grid is a strategic question. Um, but it's also difficult for any investor, whether it's Chinese or international investor, to say we are investing in a solar or wind park and we are even getting a power purchasing agreement for that many um, cents per, per, per um, kilowatt hour. Um, as long as you can't feed in your energy, your electricity into the grid, reliably, um, then all your investment um, is worthless. So the question of kind of the grid integration um, and renewable uh, energy um, must be seen much more um, together than we're seeing it right now. And this is also something where uh, it's easy then to invest in coal because it's so stable, it is so reliable, it is so easy to plan, um, and uh, renewable energy sometimes makes it a little bit difficult. The, the playbook on coal has already been written so many times, so everybody knows exactly what to do, whereas the renewables, in many cases, particularly for developing countries, is something totally new. I mean, it's a, so the people don't really know what the, the ROI will be and, 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 and how it works, so I, I, I make sense a lot on that. Exactly, and that's the same, th same thing for, sorry for interrupting, but it's the same thing for a lot of the investors the experiences that the investors have um, in structuring coal deals is just enormous. We have uh, decades of experiences in really doing um, coal investment deals. And the price of coal-fired power plants has been extremely stable. So it is very easy to understand the future cash flows for a financial institution. Now, what is changing with uh, the... Uh, um, particularly there's this, um, it's called the Task Force uh, for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. Um, it is an initiative uh, built by Mark Carney, who is the um, central bank governor of the UK or England, and uh, Michael Bloomberg. And the idea is to understand um, financial risk um, due to climate change. And uh, so this is more and more integrated into um, the risk modeling of financial institutions, which hasn't been the case um, a couple of years ago. Now, if you include these um, financial risks that um, are coming from climate change, um, suddenly the calculations start to look different. And this is what we're seeing also in the financial sector to understand their climate risk. What does it mean for our fossil fuel investment and what does it mean uh, potentially for our renewable investment. And this is something that is happening right now. This is very exciting, um, but we're still at the beginning, I would say, of the journey um, that ideally um, will accelerate over the next couple of, of years. Mengdi, you talked about earlier about the financial services sector within China, and it, it makes me think a little bit about whether China in 2021 and beyond will be in the position to extend the type of loans for energy finance or for anything, really, for that matter, the way that they had, in part because, uh, you know, central bank governor Yi Gang, he was quoted as saying that uh, total debt is now at about 280 percent of GDP. 
There are questions about corporate debt now in China that then impacts, of course, the banking system. That China's uh, you know economy is in many ways not growing anywhere near as fast as it did, and is may not be anywhere as stable as we think it is. And so that means the available resources for massive spending on the BRI and on renewable energy and all that just won't be there in the future. Obviously, you and Boston University and uh, China Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins, Rhodium Group have all tracked that the spending is going down. But might it really go down for a long time given the poor health or what it looks like the poor health of some of the parts of the banking sector in China? I think that is a really good question and a complicated question. Uh, Christoph, can you do you have any brilliant ideas about that? Yeah, so I think what's interesting there is that uh, the Chinese economy is, uh, as you say, not growing as fast as it used to be, and there is, of course, uh, not as much capital freely available. I think that's a good thing. Um, we are seeing more focus, ideally, on bankable projects. So um, the white elephant projects that that we have been seeing, which don't return their investments, um, ideally will phase out. So with less money, you will focus on what's bankable. That's that's number one. The second thing what we're hoping um, to see is actually more cooperation, international cooperation in the BRI, where not only Chinese investors um, are financing Chinese corporations um, to build up specific type of infrastructure, but also more international um, organizations, the development banks, or also private financial institutions are working together with Chinese um, EPCs, uh, engineering, um, procurement, and construction companies um, in order to build up the necessary infrastructure. Because what we know is, of course, there's a lot of infrastructure need in a lot of the BRI countries. We need roads. We need uh, ports. We need um, electricity infrastructure and many other things. The question is, who can finance it and who can build it? And I think we're seeing a shift um, of a broader understanding that there is a potential um, for broader cooperation. This requires a little bit of rethink, both on the international um, finance side and on the um, Chinese side, because the standards that have been have been used, for example, for environmental impact assessment, have not been fully aligned. Um, but there's a lot of work being done within China right now. And I mentioned the um, green development guidance before. This is definitely an important step um, in order to drive more international standards, more common standards um, among the investors and the developers to, in order to be able to actually work together, which so far we have not seen enough. Christopher Nedipil is the founding director of the Green Belt and Road Initiative Center and a senior research fellow at the International Institute of Green Finance at the Central University of Finance and Economics in Beijing. And Meng Diyue, who you just heard from, is a researcher also at the Green BRI Center. Thank you both for taking the time to help us figure out what's going on in the green finance and the green energy sector. It's it's a very confusing time. Uh, I highly recommend everybody to check out the report and really put it into the library of, of reports that are out there to understand the, the trends as to where the BRI is going. Again, Rhodium Group's been writing on this, Boston University, China Africa Research Initiative, and this report from the Green Belt and Road Initiative Center should also be on the reading list. Christoph, if people want to find out more about what you guys are doing there at the Green BRI Center. What should they do and how should they get in touch with you guys? Yeah, so they can follow us, uh, of course, on Twitter. And we are on Twitter. Um, our handle is Green Belt Road and also on LinkedIn, um, where you can find us under Green Belt and Road Initiative. Fantastic. It's been such a pleasure being with you. Wonderful. Well, we'll put a link to the Twitter handle as well as to some of the reports from 2020, just so everybody can follow them. Thank you both for joining us and a happy new year. Happy new year. And thanks so, so much for having us. Thanks for inviting us. Happy new year. 
Kobus, once again, the message coming out of Beijing is that the BRI is down, but definitely not out. There's, it's adaptable and very flexible. And I think the financing trends that we're hearing from Mengdi and from Christoph are reflecting that. So if you are in a BRI country or an aspiring BRI country, the message is that the days of the big mega project with billions of dollars of financing for coal, for hydropower and for for oil-based projects are gone. They're going to be much smaller projects. Again, I think Nigeria's got a great example of this. China Exim Bank financing a 2.3, 2.4 billion dollar deal for the AKK pipeline, that's a natural gas pipeline, very clear return on investment by Chinese standards, that's a relatively small project, but the big uh, Senghua power plant in Zimbabwe, my guess is on death's door. That is the kind of old project that you're not going to see anymore. These coal projects were never going to be off the ground or to be profitable. And I have a feeling that those days are over. I'm curious as to what small looks like when they keep talking about small. Maybe there's some, uh, you know, some examples in Zambia. There's a $500 million solar power farm that they built there. Also in northern Kenya, they've been building solar power farms as well. In the 100 megawatt, 50 megawatt kind of space, also in Ghana, the China Exim Bank was involved in a uh, in this great kind of initiative of using hydro and solar together. Those are very interesting projects as well. So that might be the future that we're looking at now, and it's a very different world than what we've seen over the past ten years. Well, this is the interesting aspect of the BRI, you know, kind of because once when it was when it was coined originally, all of these people were complaining like, "Oh, it's so vague. We don't know what it is." Well. The, that's the point, you know. Kind of, it's it's like we used to think it's it's it means big kind of power plant projects. Now it means maybe many many smaller kind of like solar projects. Maybe who knows what it will mean five years? You know, kind of it's this, it's this incredibly like flexible like multi stakeholder thing that that they can kind of move to to kind of deal with whatever they need to deal with. You know, kind of so so in, in some kind of ways the vagueness is the point. And and that flexibility is so important. And that's what I found so interesting from Moritz Rudolph's article yesterday from the German Institute of International Security Affairs. Now, he was talking about, of course, in a health context, but I think this applies to many other verticals within the BRI about how adaptable and flexible this thing is. And I think it's one of the aspects of Chinese policymaking that a lot of people underestimate, particularly in Washington, where they they kind of see it what it was two or three years ago and not, haven't necessarily updated their understanding of it where it is today. But that adaptability, I think, is a key part that we have to start studying a lot more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think part of, and, and one of the things that, that makes um, um, Christoph and Mengli's work so interesting is that it it also opens up the, the space to talk about kind of feedbacks from the BRI back into China, you know, and, and to which extent, to which extent there's this push from, from member countries, you know, around particular um, projects, and to which extent that that is slowly shifting thinking within China about what the BRI could be. You know, kind of that's a very kind of complicated thing to to answer. Um, but it, it, you know, I think I think this kind of uh, analysis starts opening the doors to, to looking at that as well. Okay, let's leave our conversation there. Of course, we do this type of discussion every single day in our newsletter. Uh, Christoph is a subscriber, and Kevin's a subscriber over at Boston University, and we'd love for you to join our growing community of readers around the world, where every day we do a deep dive on what's going on in the China-Africa relationship, but increasingly what China is doing in the global south, where we're trying to connect the dots between Africa, 
China, and then, of course, all points in the Americas, Arabia, and uh, Central Asia and beyond. So we'd love for you to join us. And uh, just go over to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions start at $7 for students and teachers, and it's $15 a month for everybody else. So once again, ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Yolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.